Welcome everybody to another one in our series of Financial Wellbeing Podcast. This, I believe, is episode number 42. 42 of these we've done. Not all of them with producer Tomo here, but Tomo, at least say hello to us for the ones that you have been part of. Uh, hi guys, been part of most of them, but only only been given a voice from about episode 12. Now we that. just can't keep that voice exactly. down, can And they've just got better and better and better. They have. It's like a fine wine. <laughs> and that other voice you heard was... Chris Bird. Hello, everybody. Hello, and my name's David Lloyd. So, what have you been up to then, Chris, recently? Anything exciting? Well, I've been kind of locked in my cabin in my garden writing a programme to help companies to turn their business into employee-owned, succession to employee ownership trusts. What have we got on today's podcast, Chris? <laughs> Today, David, we're going to hear from a chap called Professor Tim Kasser. A professor? Oh, I say we're going very upmarket this oh, week yes. then, aren't we? Oh, yes, we only deal with the most intelligent people, and Tomo. <laughs> um, Tim as uh, he kindly allowed me to call him, has been researching the relationship to well-being and stuff um, for many, many years. So you can imagine he's got a lot to say, which our listeners are going to find fascinating. OK, look forward to that interview. Then. I like it when you have these chats with people from, from America because they have uh, obviously international expertise and sometimes a slightly different perspective on yeah, things. Yeah, really interesting here. guy. Yeah. yeah. OK, look forward to that. But before we move on to that, let's go on to one of our more regular features. It's um, Ovation Client Questions. So, as you know, this uh, this podcast is uh, sponsored by Ovation Finance, which Chris uh, used to own and has uh, recently sold or part sold to the employees uh, in, a, in an act of great, great philanthropy <laughs> and, and I think financial benefit to himself. We've got, I think, some questions, Tomo, this week from some of your clients. We have. Uh, this one is from, again, a lot of these questions come from relatively new clients as they start to learn and educate themselves on all things finances and this one was about a question what is income drawdown from a pension and many of our listeners will already have seen in the press over the last three or four years pension freedoms come in and income drawdown is a way in which you can take money from your pension it essentially when you come to need an income in retirement, you don't have to buy an annuity with your pension fund. And I'm talking personal pensions But Tom, that's been the case since 1996. Surely people it, know that now. It's, it has, but I don't think people really did know that. Because well, I'm going to, I'm going to actually play the, um, the, the person that doesn't necessarily understand what you're talking about. So I'm going to rewind slightly. What is an annuity? Good point. That's a very good point. And again, it's why you're here. <laughs> um, because your, I know nothing. Your lack yeah. of knowledge is invaluable to us. So, you take your pe your personal pension and you give it to an insurance company and in exchange they provide you a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. So for a lot of people that works really well. Uh, you can have it shaped in certain ways so it could increase with inflation or it could be uh, fixed so it doesn't increase throughout the rest of your life which has its dangers. Uh, you can put in some kind of spouse's benefit in there so maybe if you died 50% of it could be paid to well, a the income, not of the, the income. Because the, the point income. about the annuity is that you don't see the cash ever again. Right. You're handing it over to a promise of guaranteed income. Yeah. You can build in some um, fund return, but then that decreases the income you could get. Essentially, annuity rates at the moment aren't great, but they can work for an awful lot of people. If you're in ill health, you might get an increased. We've got some health issues, an increased annuity or, or income. So it can work for an awful lot of people. But there is this, this other option of income drawdown, which essentially you take your, your pot and you draw an income from it as and when you need it. 25% um, of the pot can be taken tax-free. 
Um, doesn't have to be taken all at once, you can take it in bits and bobs. The rest of it is at your marginal tax rate. So if you're a 20% taxpayer, you'd pay 20% tax on it. And that could work for a lot of people, but there is a drawback to this. And it's the fact that the pot will be invested still. And that comes with its own risk. So you imagine the annuity provides a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. The drawdown pot, well, that has its own risk that it might not last you for the rest of your life. Um, the investment markets could go against you. So there's risk in drawdown. And presumably, once you've drawn some of the money down to spend it on whatever you want, it's no longer there in the pot to be invested. So the amount you have to invest is reduced as well. Precisely. Precisely. So it needs a lot of care and attention. And actually, I believe income drawdown is where financial advice really is important because a financial advisor can help you draw a sensible and sustainable amount from the pot. Which actually quite often can be more than the amount you thought you might take. People tend to be very cautious and careful, um, but financial planning can tell you exactly how much is a sensible level of income. Yeah. Yes, well, I mean, I've recently drawn something down in, in, in exactly in that way from my pension, just a small amount of money yeah. I needed to get my hands on some cash. Yeah. And Ian, my advisor, said, no, yeah, you can do that. It's, I wouldn't do it every year, but actually at the moment you can do that because uh, you've had a very good year yeah. and it's not a problem. So, But I wouldn't have known that without the advice that he was able to give me. So the important message there is, firstly, if you have a, a pot of money and you want to buy an annuity, that's cool. But don't buy it necessarily from the company that your pension's with. You shop around for the best rates and then take some good plan financial planning advice to see if drawdown might be an option if you've got a larger fund of, I don't know, what would you say would be a minimum, Tomo? Difficult to say, but if you're looking in the region of 100,000, but then again, it's horses for courses. But yeah, that's usually a, a figure that you should possibly think about that you really need to be taking good advice know your options and financial advice at the point of retirement is invaluable. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Tomo. Now, while we're getting good advice from you, it's time to move on to our regular feature, Tight Ass Tomo. Over a long period of time, Tomo's been coming up with these great money-saving bits of advice. It all came from when he took Chris and another work colleague out to lunch. He persuaded them to have one particular thing on the menu because, as it turned out, he had a voucher to buy that very thing. I used that app. Just the other day, I did. Really, remind us what it's called. I it's called know. Riggle. Uh, w R I G G L E. Uh -huh. It's in Bristol, a few other cities, but I used it the other day. I got a pizza, beer, and a side for twelve pound fifty. Fantastic. So yeah, the first ever tight ass Tomo tip is still being used to this day. <laughs> that is brilliant. So have you got a, another one for us or one that perhaps somebody else has sent in? There's a couple actually. We've had, we had a good one from Simon Ganesson who was on the previous podcast episode 17. Simon's a financial coach. Oh yeah, she was the um, woman who asked us to imagine what money would look like if it walked into a room. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's absolutely brilliant. She really gets people thinking about their relationship to money. Um, and she suggested that if you're setting a budget or a spending plan for your finances, don't forget to set a behaviour to go with it, which is really important if it's linked to potentially emotional spending. Now, what, when you talk about emotional spending, what can you define what that means? Well, let, let's, let's uh, give an example from the Financial Wellbeing book. We have a tip in there that says that if you're going to buy something which isn't necessary, that's an, uh, an emotional response, maybe you're just looking at thinking, oh, wow, that's a really cool what, a guitar or whatever it might be. Wait two weeks. So don't buy it there and then, but just say, I'll, if in two weeks I still want it, I will buy it. 
Yeah, very, very good advice. So that's a good example of a habit that you can apply to a type of spending. Uh, we've also had um, another tip from two people on our Twitter account, uh, which is at Finn Wellbeing. I'm sure you will follow that anyway. Uh, so both Christopher Tilly, who's at SF underscore Chris, and Joe Bloom, at Joe Bloomy, they suggest using a digital bank such as Monzo to automate your savings. Joe says, you can automatically round up those pennies for every purchase made moving them into a savings pot. Thomas, what's Monzo? I've never heard of that before. So I've used Monzo. Um, a lot of it, there's a lot of digital banks appearing and they are, as you can well imagine, they don't have high street presence, but they're all based on trying to be a bit more intuitive. So Monzo is one of these banks and it's great. You get a, you know, a normal, normal current account and a fantastic, I've got it in my wallet actually, it's a lovely bright orange card. And Essentially, they just use technology to help you budget better. Um, I know what it does is it itemizes your spending straight away as soon as the money's spent. But clearly, they've added this this new setup where you can set it up. Say you spent I don't know two pound sixty on a cup of coffee, and it would automatically put forty p into a savings account for you. So you know, just automation. Automation is the key with saving. And if you don't have to think about it, and all of a sudden at the end of the month you've got I don't know fifty pounds or something saved. Fantastic. Well, so you could and you can control that. So you can set the parameters yourself. So every time I buy this particular thing, I want you to put that particular amount of money into my savings account. You can set some specific parameters, such as any spare change. You know, if it was, it could be three pounds seventy. Make sure the thirty p goes into the savings. It's not something I've done personally yet, and it's actually uh, Joe Bloom who put me onto it. So I'm gonna have a look at that, and I've actually got to doff my hat to Joe as he announced to the world that he's been a listener since episode one over no. two years ago. Wow. And it's him. We yeah, found him. We found him. <laughs> our, our one and only listener. So thank you for the support, Oh, Joe. that's great. So I suppose that's a little bit like putting your loose change in a jar by yeah, the way, exactly. isn't it? It's exactly yeah. like that. It is, but does it for you automatically? Because less, we use cash less and less yeah. now. And if your card can automatically do that change in the jar which is a really good way of putting it, fantastic. I think it's a great idea. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. But uh, enough of the tips from other people. What have you got for us this week, Tomo? Well, it's not, it doesn't sound as good as that now, does it? <laughs> um, do you know, I was thinking the other day, I had some old electrical products in the house, and I thought, well, you know, what do I do with them? I'm talk talking old mobile phones in particular. And I was looking online, and I come across uh, something called Mazuma Mobile. M-A-Z-U-M-A mobile.com and there are other websites that do the same thing but essentially you type in the model what kind of condition it's in and they give you an estimate of what what they would provide you know if you sent it to them they would send you a bank transfer or you can have vouchers for certain shops that they give you a little bit more for but a great way of trading in old electrical products you just sit around the house doing nothing that's right now that is a good idea the Cautionary bit of advice that I would say, having tried some of these myself with old mobile phones of mine, I've done it three or four times with that particular firm and indeed with others. In every instance, you put in the details, you say what the model of the phone is, you say what you think its condition is, they tell you how much they think they're going to give you for it, you send it off. Every single time, they've ended up paying me less and they originally said, yeah. because they've come back and said, oh, well, actually, the condition wasn't as good as you said it was, and blah de blah de blah So I've always made something on it. 
but never as much as they initially well, said. Well, maybe you should just be more honest when you're saying what they could initially <laughs> Well, there is that, but I, you know, I always thought I kind of was being honest, but yeah. I suppose you can't always and, and do, do you get the opportunity to have it returned to you once they've done I think you do, yes, but, okay. I, I, but the reality is that once you've done that and sent mm. it off, I mean, the yeah. dif- it was the difference between 50 quid and 20 quid, so wow. you just go away. Great controversy on the Financial Wellbeing podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I know, but it's, it's good to know somebody, to hear from somebody who's, who's actually used it several, on several occasions. Very good tip. Yeah. Right, on to the main event. Chris, this professor chum of yours, who is he? And what have you been talking about with him? Tim Casser is a professor of psychology at Knox College in Illinois, which, as you will well know, is in America. He's written a few books about materialism and the consumer culture and has been researching this area for 20 years or so. He's got a new book out called Hypercapitalism, and it's a comic book looking at how capitalism has developed a few less pleasant features than perhaps was originally intended and what we can do about them as consumers. We're going to hear more about the book in the second part of the interview, which will be in a future podcast. But today we're going to hear about his research into our spending habits and how they make us happy. So let's hear from Tim Kasser. So Professor Kasser, who I shall refer to as Tim for the uh, duration of this chat, if that's all right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off, if I may, talking about some of your materialism and consumerism uh, topics that you, you've researched over the years. You've been looking at this for a long, long time about spending money and and how buying stuff affects our well-being. What's your research shown over the years? Well, what we really focus on is what happens when people orient their value system around making money, around having a lot of possessions, around having the right image, which is usually mediated by possessions. So it's less that we focus specifically on what happens during the act of purchase and more that uh, we focus on what happens when the idea of purchasing or the importance of purchasing and the importance of making a lot of money becomes central to a person's value system or to a person's identity. So what we do is we contrast, you know, the values for materialism and consumerism with other kinds of things people could value, things like spirituality or family or having fun or growing as a person. And what we find is that when people increase the sort of focus or privilege more um, these materialistic values for money, image, status, possessions, etc., they report lower levels of well-being. That was sort of the first set of findings that my colleagues and I um, discovered back in the early 1990s. And since then, it's actually that basic finding has been replicated a couple hundred times in different samples around the world, different ages, lots of different ways of measuring well-being, et cetera. So we know that the more that people focus on materialistic values, the less happy they are, the less satisfied with their lives they are, the more depressed and anxious they are. The more they drink and smoke and um, do other kind of things that aren't so good for their health. Do you find that's the case even when they achieve those values? So if somebody values materialism and and wealth and they become wealthy and have lots of material possessions, does that still not make them happy? There's two ways to look at that. One way to look at that is to do a longitudinal study where you track people over time and you see whether or not um, as people succeed or fail at their goals, 
um, their well-being changes. And we, while we find that success at certain kinds of goals, like relationship goals or your personal growth goals, success at those goals does promote well-being over time, what we find is that success at these materialistic extrinsic goals actually has little to no effect on people's increasing well-being. Another way to look at that is to look at what's what we call an interaction um, between materialistic values and people's wealth in the prediction of well-being. So that's like, if you're poor, how does materialism relate to well-being? And if you're rich, how does materialism relate to well-being? And while we do find that it's uh, kind of worse to be poor and materialistic for your well-being than to be rich and materialistic, it's still a negative relationship between materialism and well-being, even among uh, wealthy individuals and even among people living in wealthy nations. So, so far, all of the evidence um, suggests that wealth might dampen the negative impact of being materialistic, but it doesn't erase it. So one might say that achieving goals will make us happy, um, having objectives and setting goals in life, and then if you achieve them. But if your goals are the wrong goals, if the goals are materialistic, then it's, that isn't going to make you happy. Again, I, I don't doubt that there is some short-term benefit that comes in terms of, of goal success. So, you know, there's no doubt that when somebody, you know, say gets a raise or, you know, buys the thing they really want or something like that, I'm sure that they do get some sort of a, a, a brief short-term boost out of that goal success. The thing we focused on mostly is what's the kind of longer term effects of those different types of goal success. And what we find is that just as you summarized, for certain kinds of goals, um, success at goals is good for your well-being. And we call those the intrinsic goals, by the way. Those are goals for personal growth or connection to family or connection to the community. And the research clearly shows that success at those kinds of goals does promote well-being. But success at those extrinsic materialistic goals, the research shows, while it might give you a short-term bump, that bump doesn't last very long and uh, you drop back down. So for the benefits of our listeners, can we just expand on that a little bit? Well, give us some, some more examples of intrinsic and extrinsic. How will our listeners understand what those two different things mean? Well, one of the analogies that I use a lot is that uh, if you think of your value system as like a pie and it's divided into different slices. So you have a slice that has about spirituality. You have a slice that's about hedonism. You have a slice that's about your health. You have a slice about money. You have a slice about your own personal growth, your relationships, etc. What we know from the research, both that my colleagues and I have done, but also that others have done, is that those values are organized in a fairly consistent way across cultures. So it seems to be something that may be kind of basic to the human motivation system. Some of the values that people focus on are what we've called the extrinsic values. And we call those extrinsic values because they're focused on rewards, they're focused on praise, they're focused on uh, other people saying, oh, you're great, uh, status sorts of issues, etc. And so we call those extrinsic or materialistic values 
um, for that reason. And the three main extrinsic values that we've studied over the years are for financial success, which includes money and possessions, uh, image, which is being attractive, having an image that other people think is worthwhile, and then popularity or status, which is other people kind of giving you the feedback, oh, you're great. So I hope your listeners can hear how all of those really are extrinsic. They're focused on an external reward or external praise from other people. In contrast, we have the intrinsic values. Uh, those are values, well, four main ones we focused on are for your own personal growth, for uh, affiliation or connection to loved ones, for physical health, and then for what we call community feeling, which is helping the world be a better place. And we call those intrinsic values because they're values which, from our perspective, are intrinsically satisfying to pursue. Okay, What they do is they do a good job of meeting people's psychological needs. And that, by the way, is why um, when you pursue your intrinsic goals, you get happier because your needs get satisfied. But when you pursue your extrinsic goals, your needs aren't very well satisfied, and that doesn't promote your well-being. In any case, what we find is that those intrinsic goals tend to cluster together in that value pie. That is, the slices, uh, the slice of self-acceptance is is sort of next to the slice for affiliation. And what that means is that people experience those goals as relatively compatible with each other. Similarly, the uh, value for money is right next to the value for image. People tend to experience those values as compatible with each other. But the intrinsic goals are on the opposite side of the value pie of the extrinsic goals. That is, they're in conflict with each other. They stand in a dynamic tension with each other. And there's lots and lots of different ways that the research has shown this in terms of survey work, in terms of experimental work, etc. But what it demonstrates is that a relative focus on those extrinsic values for money and status and such tends to suppress the intrinsic values. Um, we use the metaphor of a seesaw. As one goes up, the other one tends to go down. So, so that's what's fundamentally going on in the human mind, according to the psychological research, as people um, are thinking about what's important to them, but also as they're behaving. The more they get focused on those extrinsic goals, um, that's what's going to determine their behavior, and the, the intrinsic goals for their growth or helping others tends to get suppressed. So one way of looking at this then from a financial point of view, because this is the Financial Wellbeing Podcast, we're looking at money and happiness. Sure. I, I, I guess the answer is to use money in order to increase your intrinsic values. Would that make sense? Well, I would say two things about that. Uh, at, at first, yes. So what you just said absolutely is true. You know, so as one is thinking about one's uh, financial behavior, you know, so I've been studying materialism for 25 years, but I use money. You know, I have investments. And we're material beings, right? And we live in a world um, where there is money and where uh, the way that the world is set up, you know, if I want to retire one day, I probably need to have some investments probably. And so, so on the one hand, I do think that it's really important. But as we think about our financial behavior, both with regard to consuming and with regard to investing and with regard to sharing our money, that what we try to do is to infuse that financial behavior 
primarily with our intrinsic values. So this would lead to things like investing in companies which support our values or buying products from companies that are um, supportive of our values. So that certainly is part of the equation. But I think the other part of the equation, though, is that in a consumer capitalist society like ours, what marketers attempt to do is to try to convince us that pretty much all problems of life can be solved through financial means, that is, through investing or through buying. And what I say to people is money solves money problems, but not all problems in life are money problems. And so part of the, I would say the second part of the trick is to be able to distinguish those parts of your life where money is a relevant solution from those parts of your life where other pathways are much more direct and will do a better job of solving the problem that you have in life. Just to give you a brief example, you know, you, you see all kinds of commercials that suggest if you're going to propose to a woman to, to get married that you better die, buy her a diamond, right? That's using a material thing to solve a problem of love. And, and my view is that if the relationship depends upon the ring, you've probably got a problem, okay? And the research actually bears that out. There is a study that was done that showed that the more money people spent on their weddings and their rings, the, the more likely they were divorced later on. I think it gets at this issue that you're trying to use money to solve a problem which isn't money related. It's not about money. So those are the two aspects of how I think money plays into all this. That's a great, great expression. Um, don't use money to solve a problem that doesn't need money to solve it. Um, you, you touched there on advertising, and I wanted to just talk about that. When I watch TV, I have my hand no more than a few centimetres away from the remote control to press the mute button the second the adverts come on. I'd do anything to avoid advertising. Um, so I'm hoping that you're going to confirm my prejudices here. What effect does advertising have on our well-being? Well, I can speak better to what effect advertising has under our values, which then influences our well-being. I mean, pretty much any advertisement has the following script. Your life would be better if you bought X. And sometimes the script is your life stinks right now uh, because you aren't buying X. Look at this person who does buy X and how happy they are. That's sort of the alternative script. You know, that's the basic message that pretty much any advertisement gives us. And, you know, the exact way in which the product will make our lives better, supposedly, sometimes it's to make us more beautiful, to make us more loved, to make us appear more competent, to make us feel more safe. And so so that's kind of the constant underlying refrain that all advertisements basically are going to to be singing, if you will. Now, what we know about how the human mind works is that it, it works a lot by paying attention to what people in the environment say is important, um, whether it's our mother or father or loved one or advertisements or religious leaders, etc. And so this constant refrain of, of seeing and hearing advertisements which suggest to us that money solves life's problems um, and the possessions solve life's problems 
is one of the things that research definitely shows is associated with taking on materialistic values. Um, we know that the more that people ingest advertisement um, through a variety of different means, the higher their levels of materialism. And as I described earlier, the lower their levels of well-being. So, um, and there are actually a couple path, what are called path analysis studies with children, which show that media exposure leads to increased materialism, which in turn leads to lower levels of well-being through getting us focused on these materialistic values. And I know you're very active in trying to stop all advertising to children, aren't you? Yes, I am. I've uh, been involved uh, since the early 2000s with an organization called Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. I've written a lot of stuff about materialism in kids and about advertising to kids. The new book talks a lot about advertising to kids, too. To me, it's a no-brainer, and we don't sell cigarettes to kids. We don't sell alcohol to kids. We don't let kids work in factories. We don't let kids, you know, be involved in the pornography industry. Um, we shouldn't be advertising to children either. It's it's clear that it's not good for their well-being at multiple levels. It's advertising is also associated with obesity and sexual promiscuity and violent behavior and on and on body image kinds of problems. Um, it's also the case the research shows that children under the age of eight, maybe even ten, don't really understand that advertisements ha um, are trying to persuade them to buy something. So it's inherently manipulative. If what we care about is children's well-being, then we should end advertising to children. If what we care about is corporate profit, then advertising to children is going to continue, and that's what we see in nations like the U.S. and the U.K., yeah, I saw a tweet from Kim Kardashian advertising a um, appetite suppressant drug. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it got quite a lot of negative press, but, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who will work on it as well. That's exactly right. You suggest at the beginning of hypercapitalism that materialistic values are associated with destructive attitudes towards the environment. Can you talk about that and maybe give us some evidence that you have for that? You bet. So I'll go back to the value pie that we talked about before. So you'll remember that I talked about how materialistic extrinsic values tend to stand in opposition to those intrinsic values. There's another similar set of work from a guy named Shalom Schwartz, which looks at um, values for power and money and status and how they contrast or in, are in conflict with what he calls universalism values, which are a type of intrinsic value from our reckoning. And one or a couple of the uh, universalism values are values for protecting the environment and for a world of beauty, caring about nature, etc. So Schwartz finds this same basic uh, kind of psychological psychological conflict between a focus on materialistic extrinsic values and uh, the pro-environmental values. And we know from a variety of different studies that um, the more people focus on these materialistic values, the more likely they act in ecologically destructive ways. So one of the very first studies to ever demonstrate this, I did with a guy named Kirk Brown, and we studied 400 North Americans, and, and we found that the more that people were focused on extrinsic values compared to intrinsic values, the less likely they were to engage in a list of about 40 different um, environmental behaviors, which ranged from, you know, flipping off a light in an unused room to voting for, you know, 
politicians on the basis of their political or environmental platform. And then also we found that they have um, more materialistic people have higher what are called ecological footprints. That is, they use up more resources in order to um, support their particular lifestyle. They have bigger houses, they eat more meat, they fly more often, etc. Since that 2005 study, um, in, in 2013, we did uh, a meta-analysis where we brought together the results of about a dozen different studies or so and, and kind of put them all into one big data set and again found uh, across these different studies that the more that people uh, focus on materialistic values, the uh, less um, they act in pro-ecological ways. There's one other study actually that did a similar thing at um, a nation level. In one study I published in 2011, we looked at uh, the values of 20 different nations and I correlated that with their CO2 emissions per capita. Um, and found that nations which are more focused on money and power and status uh, emit more carbon per capita than nations which are more focused on intrinsic values. So there's a variety of different sources of evidence for this. So does that mean that a concern for the environment is an intrinsic value? In terms of understanding how values are organized, caring about the environment sort of sits with caring about people in other nations, caring about future generations, etc. And in the research that we've done, those sorts of values are experienced by people as more intrinsic, yes. And they're certainly not extrinsic, are they? Because they're not any external opinion of oneself. That's correct. I mean, certainly people can engage in those behaviors for extrinsic reasons. I remember when I was in the UK a while back, I was talking to a, a friend who was uh, walking with someone who had just installed solar panels, but she had put them on the north side of her house. And the friend, and the friend said, why, why'd you do that? And she said, well, because otherwise people walking on the street wouldn't see that I'd installed the solar panel. Okay. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, that's very clearly was a kind of a extrinsically motivated reason for buying the solar panel, right? She wasn't buying the solar panel to help the earth. She was buying the solar panel in order to show off to her friends. And so it's, it's you know, it's one of these places where you have to be careful about, you know, what is the, what is it the person values? What is it that they care about? In this case, the woman cared about um, status versus what's the behavior? So the behavior of buying a solar panel in itself is neither intrinsic or extrinsic. The value of caring about the environment is what's intrinsic. We've talked a bit about how um, extrinsic values, materialism, money in itself uh, is not necessarily going to make you happy. In fact, it's more likely to make you unhappy. But one last thing, I, I want to come on to a few things that we can actually do to change this, but there was just one little subtlety in your book which I loved, which is the difference between buying and consuming. Can you just spend a minute explaining what you mean by that? Sure. Well, well, buying is a behavior, okay? You know, so I go and I buy food um, to eat or I buy my house, okay? Consuming is uh, the way that we talk about it. When you go and you think about the word consume, it actually means to use up and to destroy. So the house was consumed by a fire. Okay, and and the whole branch of of what's called consumer engineering was very explicitly in America designed in order to shift people from merely buying things to buying things that would be used up quickly i.e. consumed, so that then the person would need to buy again. 
And so there's lots of different examples of this. You know, some of it has to do with disposables, like disposable pens or disposable razors. Used to be you had a razor, you would last for a long time. You just change the blade. Now you change the whole thing. The same with a pen. Another way in which consuming um, really got amped up has to do with fads and, and uh, styles. So, you know, the way that cars models were changed every year or two or that women's dresses in particular, you know, the hem goes up, the hem goes down. You know, the idea there was to increase consumption, that is to increase how much people buy things, get rid of them, and then buy something new, because that's what then drives economic growth for the government and drives profit for corporations. So fashion itself is a form of this then? Absolutely, yeah. I was actually in a, a movie not too long ago that's called The True Cost, which is about the fast fashion industry and the various uh, costs that the fashion industry has. And, you know, it was, it was really eye-opening to me about how quickly fashions are turned over uh, these days, about every four months now, um, in order to keep consumption occurring, to keep people buying more and more and more and more stuff. So was that, that kind of why fashion was invented then? I've never thought of it like that before. But it suddenly dawned on me that fashion has been invented simply to sell more clothes. Well, yeah. And again, we go back to remember that the uh, one of the major extrinsic values is image, right? And image is a value which sits right next to money and right next to status in terms of how the value system is organized. And of course, fashion, whether it's the handbag that you have or the haircut that you have or the clothes that you're wearing or the shoes you're wearing is, is essentially an issue about image. You take a look at how many clothes people in the West own, it's really pretty overwhelming. And then how many they get rid of after they've only worn it once or twice. That's really what's happening with fast fashion. People go about, they buy things, they wear them once or twice and then they get rid of them. But of course, then they go buy something else. So fashion is is hugely implicated in this. It also has major environmental issues, you know, with regard to pollutions that happen, the trash, as well as, you know, the people only making $2 a day in some sweatshop in Bangladesh. So, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of issues involved in the fashion industry. So, yeah, the true cost is that movie. I, I recommend it to people. The other thing, though, I wanted to say real quick about the, the distinction in my mind between buying and consuming has to do with mindfulness. You know, so when you're consuming, it's oftentimes pretty mindless. Um, that is, you're not actually thinking about how your values are relevant to this uh, behavior of buying something. You're just like, oh, gimme, 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 okay? It's like a person gorging himself at a meal or gorging themselves at a shopping mall. You know, it's just like, oh, I want it, I want it, I want it. And what's happening in, in the act of consumption is that the advertising messages that you've received that this will make you happy, as well as kind of all the coupons you just got on your cell phone, as well as the pressure you're getting from the salesperson to buy this thing, those are all what's determining your, your consumption behavior. Buying, in contrast, has the potential, at least, to be mindful, okay, you know, where you stop and you pause and you ask yourself, okay, A, do I need this? B, do I need it now? Can I actually afford it? Am I going to have to go into debt to pay this? Who made it and they were they paid a fair wage and what am I going to do with it when it's done? Is it just going to rot or cause environmental problems? So when you buy mindfully, what's happening is you're reflecting on your purchase decision. 
this is where uh, we can infuse our financial behavior uh, with our values. So that brings us nicely on to the last part of your hypercapitalism book, which talks about what we can do differently. Mm-hmm which your book frames it in terms of we can do differently to beat hypercapitalism, but actually you could equally say to increase our well-being, couldn't you, to increase our financial well-being. Our financial and our overall well-being, sure. Yeah, so so I'll just pick one of them because we'll talk next time about hypercapitalism in more detail and bring out some more of these, but there's one I really liked, which was the idea of a time bank. Yeah. you just explain that concept because it's not something that's very common in the UK. Time banks were invented by a man named Edgar Kahn, and Edgar's idea was that in order to exchange goods and services, um, one has to have money, right? Um, you got to have the cash, uh, otherwise it's not possible to get what one wants or what one needs. And of course, especially poorer people, um, have little access to cash, relatively speaking, um, and other groups also have little access to cash. And so he was interested in how is it that we can give people another currency, if you will, an alternative currency by which to exchange what they can offer and to get what they need or want. And the idea he came up with was time banks. And so fundamentally, they work like this. Let's just say you've got 10 people in a time bank. Um, there's somebody who keeps track of, of all of the hours that you have. And um, so let's say you and I are both in the time bank and uh, you want piano lessons. You can take a look in the time bank directory and you see that I offer piano lessons. And so you call me up and you say, Tim, I want uh, five hours worth of piano lessons. And I say, okay. And uh, so what will happen is, is that I'll get five hours credited to my account and you'll have five hours debited from your account. And so now I've got five hours that I can spend as I want. And I see, I open up the directory and I see that there's somebody out there who is willing to come weed my garden. All right. And uh, I think, oh, well, that'd be pretty nice. And so I call that person up and they come and weed my garden for three hours. Well, now I've only got two hours of credit anymore. And so what this does is two things. I think three things, actually. The first is it gives people a chance to exchange uh, services outside of the the main financial economy. The second thing it does is it shows people that they have something to offer that other people want. The third thing, and to me the most important thing, is that everybody's hour is worth the same. So whether I'm weeding or giving piano lessons or giving tax help or legal advice, whatever it is, an hour is an hour is an hour. And so it's completely egalitarian. There's one societal or maybe economic issue I can see with this. I love the concept. Absolutely love that. I am utterly hopeless at DIY. So the idea that I could go and give somebody a lift or spend an hour with an old person or whatever it might be and in return get some shelves put up, I love that idea. That's exactly what it is. You find the thing that you can offer and then somebody else can do the thing you either don't like to do or that you're no good at. Yeah. 
but there's a there's a problem here, isn't there? Because um, over the years uh, with our financial planning company, Ovation, if we've been giving some financial advice to, say, an accountant, and that accountant has been giving us some tax advice, mm-hmm. if we do this exchange of hours, there's no tax being paid. That's correct, at least in the United States. I don't know the UK law, um, but in the United States, at least, the IRS, as I understand it, has determined that this is more or less a, a type of exchange of favor. And therefore, yes, there there is not tax being paid. Now, I can understand from a governmental perspective why that's a problem. Personally, for those individuals who feel like they don't want to be supporting a military industrial complex where, uh, at least in the United States, a substantial percentage of the taxes one pays are going to build tanks and bombs and such, that's actually uh, a pretty good positive. Yeah, unfortunately, there's also the schools and roads and hospitals, isn't there? <laughs> it's not a simple thing. That's exactly right. Although most of that's actually done at a, at least in the U.S. at a local level. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So that's that's probably a big difference than to over here then. Tim, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, there's so much we can learn. I, I think um, we'll go on and talk about the the rest of the book, Hypercapitalism, next time, and, and leave it there because that's been a fascinating insight into the personal aspect of your work. Thanks ever so much. Thank you for having me. Do you know what? That was a really interesting listen and and actually quite controversial in some of the things that he was saying there. He's clearly, although he recognises that we live in a uh, a money-based and capitalist society, has identified a few areas within that society that perhaps aren't working as well as we all hope they might. No, exactly. Um, I think uh, there's some really, really key points that come out, like a value set, uh, you know, a person who has a value set which is based upon the accumulation of wealth will have lower well-being, even if they achieve that wealth, which I thought was a really interesting point. Let's not forget the purpose of all of these podcasts. What we're trying to do is find a way of making sure that money and the way in which we use our money increases our well-being. And I think there were some very good tips there from uh, Professor Tim, as yeah. to how we can do that. So I think that exactly, Dave. So we need to spend our money to help the intrinsic values and not spend our money on extrinsic values, image status, get being rich. They don't make us happy. And he's done loads of research that proves that being rich doesn't make you happy. Yeah. And, and, and that's evidence behind it. I really love that. I particularly love the idea that marriage doesn't depend upon the quality of the ring. Yes. <laughs> I, I <didn't laughs> that's a great line. Yeah, yeah. That's very, very true. So I shall remember that as somebody who's perhaps embarking on that path myself soon. Big I'll, news to follow, maybe. I'll just, wow, you just I'll, outed yourself. I'll just get her a hula hoop. Yes, <laughs> or the Harry Bow ring. Anyway, more of that in future podcasts. That's been really interesting. So thanks for joining us today. And we'll be back with you very soon for another one of our fascinating financial wellbeing podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast.
more interesting than you might think.